This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. As of last week, I had a plan. I knew the topic that I was going to cover in this episode. I had it outlined, I was recording it, everything was going well, and it just felt hollow. With everything going on in the world, it just didn't seem to fit. So, I changed the topic. With all the madness that is 2020, I wanted to figure out what Jesus would have us do in chaotic times. And so I chose the topic, The Greatest Commandment. It seems simple enough, but this rabbit hole goes really deep. Welcome to Christianese. There are a lot of laws and a lot of commandments in the Bible. So where do we get the idea of the greatest commandment? Well, it comes from Matthew 22, when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and they say, hey, what is the most important law or which law is the greatest? And he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. So, there it is. That's it. That's the podcast. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. Yes. Oh, we did it. It means so much to me. I couldn't have done it without you. Please subscribe and review Support our sponsors. Oh my goodness, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. No, really, thank you. <clears throat> Not so fast. Jesus' answer is really, really interesting. Yes, you can totally just read his answer and say, man, I need to love God and love others, walk away, and be totally right. But I want to ask a few more questions. Jesus has just claimed to sum up all of the law and the prophets in two commandments, and they both pertain to love. In my mind, laws are cold, hard things. They define the morality of a nation and ensure that that morality is held onto. They're not really caring or empathetic or loving in my mind. I've definitely been way too informed by cop shows. Where good people want to get bad guys, but then there's the law. It's this cold, rigid, unfeeling thing that sometimes can get in the way of justice, but dadgummit, we need it. But that's not what God's law is like. When someone in the Bible talks about law, they're not talking about an uncaring, unfeeling thing. They're talking about God's guidelines for all of life. And if we understand the law and why God gave it to his people, then we'll understand what it means to actually love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's go back to Exodus. God has just brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he comes to them through their leader Moses and says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I lifted you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you will diligently listen to me, and keep my covenant, 
then you will be my special possession out of all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He then gives Moses the Ten Commandments. You'll have no other gods before me. You will not make any idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And do not covet. Now, it would have been great if Israel had kept these laws, but as Moses was coming down the mountain, he saw them breaking just about every one. Instead of waiting for Moses and seeking to worship the Lord who had just brought them out of slavery, they had built an idol of a golden calf and were worshiping it. This holy nation, this kingdom of priests, weren't doing a very good job. And that's really the story of the rest of the Torah. God giving his people guidance and them rebelling against God. In Deuteronomy, which means the second law, God repeats the Ten Commandments. And right after he does, in chapter 5, verse 29, God looks at his chosen people and says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all of my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. And in chapter 6, he starts the law with these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now think about those verses. God brought the people out of Egypt to himself. And when he gave them the second law, after all of their rebellion, he says, if only they would turn their hearts to me, if only they'd love me. And then his first, and what Jesus called the greatest command, is to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. The law is given out of God's love for his people so that they might love him. Because when they do, it's going to go well with them and their children. The foundations of the law are love. God's love for his people and his people's love for God. By the time we get to the end of the Torah, there are 613 specific laws that rest on that bedrock. And we can't list them all out, but in general they fall into three categories. Ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. The ceremonial laws describe worship, the feasts, the festivals, the seasonal habits of God's people, and how they should rightly worship Him. Then there's the civil laws. These are the rules that dictate justice and how justice works in God's society. What happens if you murder somebody? What happens if your ox accidentally knocks over your neighbor's fence? How do we keep right relationships in the midst of conflict? And then there's the moral laws. These were laws of individual piety. How are you to be holy as God is holy? And when you put all three of these together, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law, you have a total guide for how God's people should live as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that Israel doesn't do a great job of this. God says you are meant to be a light to the nations, but even prophets like Jonah don't really want to go to other nations. God tells them that if they keep his rules, things are going to go really great for them. 
But even so, they continually rebel. They keep forgetting what God has already said he wants from them. A great example of this is in Micah chapter 6. Israel is at one of its lowest points, completely disregarding God. And when God calls them out, they respond, With what should I enter the Lord's presence? With what should I bow down before the sovereign God? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of oil? Should I give him my firstborn as a payment for my rebellion, my offspring, my own flesh and blood for my sin? The people are saying, yeah, our sin is so terrible. Gosh, we must give you some kind of gift, the likes of which we've never given you before. What can we give you to make you happy, to appease you, God? And God responds, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. In other words, keep the law. Even at the end of the Old Testament, God is still there for his people. He still loves them. His desire is still for them to respond to him in love through his law. Now, as Christians, we don't have to keep the law in order to be holy. The law pointed out that we needed a Savior, and God sent that Savior. God did the work that his people couldn't do for themselves. He sent his Son to fulfill the law, to live the life we couldn't live, and die the death that we deserve, so that we might be given or imputed his righteousness, and by grace be seen as holy. Jesus fulfilled the law, but he said it's not going to pass away. God's guidance in the law for how we should live as God's people are still really important for Christians today. God still cares about how we worship him in spirit and in truth. God still really cares about civil law, taking care of one another and doing justice. And God still really cares about individual piety, being like Christ, being holy as he is holy. Because as we see in 1 Peter, we, the church, are still God's kingdom of priests and God's holy nation. It's sometimes easy to disconnect the love that Jesus is talking about from the commandments and law of God, but we can't do it. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no person anything except for love, because the one who loves fulfills the law. 1 John chapter 5, By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So what does this have to do with today? What does this have to do with the chaos of 2020? The white evangelical church has no problem understanding the greatest commandment as a call to worship and a call to individual piety, but we seemingly can't wrap our minds around the idea that the greatest commandment is necessarily tied to justice. And when we start talking about justice in reference to race, Well, things get really uncomfortable. The issue of race in the American church is typically not talked about because it's too political or it's accused of being a forced conversation. But in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment, he illustrates it with the point of the Good Samaritan, a person from a race that the people he was talking to notoriously hated. This is where Jesus took his conversation. We should follow him there, because our failure to have this conversation has led to a climate of racial bias and division that does not honor God 
and turns a blind eye to injustice. Let's start by saying that racism is a sin, that it is demonic and incompatible with the gospel, that God has made everyone in his image, that every person, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their ethnicity, is someone endowed with dignity and value by God their creator. And in the end, a multi-ethnic church will stand before the Lamb of God and worship him. There is no room for racism in God's people. But in America, our church history is defined by white racism towards non-white persons. And it affects everything from our politics to our Sunday morning segregation. If we are going to understand our current moment and how the church should engage and fight against the sin of racism, we have to understand our history. We have to know where we've gone wrong, where we need to lament, and where we need to repent. Starting in the early 17th century, African slaves were brought to the United States. And this horrific practice was engaged in and perpetuated by white Protestants. Even great theologians like Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. George Whitfield, one of America's greatest preachers, clearly understood the evils of slavery. And yet, he was still a product of his time and advocated for legalizing slavery in Georgia. By the advent of the American nation in 1776, only one denomination declared holding a slave a sin, the Quakers. In 1787, the first African-American denomination was founded after white trustees at St. George's Episcopalian Church in Philadelphia forcibly removed black parishioners during congregational prayer. In 1845, Southern Baptists disagreed so vehemently with black civil rights and abolitionists that they split from Northern Baptists and formed the Southern Baptist Convention. In 1861, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church declared that the slave system in the United States had generally proven kindly and benevolent towards slaves and resolved that a black man's normal condition was slavery. After the abolition of slavery, the church did not heal her wounds. Instead, Jim Crow laws and segregation exacerbated the divide between black and white Christians. Churches in the South were segregated by both law and fear of organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. Churches in the North were more open towards multi-ethnic churches, but generally still divided along racial lines. In the 1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to the United States to study in New York. Both he and his brother concluded that racism was such a glaring problem in the United States that neither one could imagine raising a family here. Bonhoeffer was so affected by this that he wrote, quote, God has granted American Christianity no reformation. He has given it strong revivalist preachers, churchmen, and theologians but no reformation of the church of Jesus Christ by the word of God. The person and the work of Christ has sunk into the background and in the long run remains misunderstood because it is not recognized as the sole ground of radical judgment and radical forgiveness. While there was progress up to and through the civil rights era, the church remains segregated. 
I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. Uh, I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated, and any church that uh, stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ and it fails to be a true witness. Did the church make progress throughout American history in regards to racial reconciliation? Absolutely. Are organizations like the Presbyterian Church and the Southern Baptist Convention inherently racist? No. Both have done significant work in repairing the damages done in the past. But we cannot ignore our history. The segregation of the American church today is a byproduct of a racist history. It is the outcome of white Christian refusal to worship with black Christians. And in the end, it is a failure of the greatest commandment. And this failure is ongoing. In a study done by Lifeway, most American Christians prefer their worship to be segregated. Two-thirds of American churchgoers say that their church has done enough to become racially diverse. Less than half think that their church should become more diverse. And in American Christianity, evangelicals are the most likely to say that their church is diverse enough. And white Christians are the least likely to say their church should become more diverse. White evangelicals may not be explicitly or actively racist but we are the most likely group to think that our racist history really isn't our problem. We are the most likely group to be apathetic and comfortable in racial segregation during our worship. And typically, when we talk about engaging the effects of racism, not just in the church, but the systems outside of the church that have unfairly preyed upon and targeted African Americans, the conversation is brushed away because it's too political because it's elevating social justice above the gospel. Is racism a theological or a political issue? It's a theological issue. It's a failure to recognize the way that God has created humanity. It's a rejection of the work of Christ. It's a refusal of the Christian mission to be ministers of reconciliation. It is willful ignorance, not only of how the church formed going out to Samaria and all the Gentiles, but also the eschatological church, which is beautifully multi-ethnic. Racism is a theological issue. Is justice a partisan political issue? No. Justice is a theological issue. We know that God cares deeply about justice. Proverbs 17.15 says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. But God's justice is not merely punitive, it's also restorative, calling his people to seek out the most vulnerable in their community and helping them, and setting up ways to ensure that injustice does not continue. Justice is a law issue. It's a love issue. It's a theological issue. But when we talk about it, we tend to get squirmy because we think it's not our brand of politics. But being politically active in protecting the image of God and combating sin is our brand of politics. We are politically active 
when it comes to protecting the image of God in unborn children. We know that preaching the gospel is part of the solution, but policies are needed. Action is needed. Why then, when it comes to protecting the image of God and combating the sin of racism, do we think that justice is too liberal, that all we need to do is preach the gospel? White evangelicals are comfortable in segregation. We don't think things need to change. And we'll protect the image of God as long as it's a part of our party's favored political platform. We put Sunday morning comfort over church unity, and we put political party over the call of Christ. We have not loved God because we have not loved one another. So how should Christians live in a chaotic 2020? This is a unique opportunity for the Church of Jesus Christ to be a radical and glorifying counterculture, to be a light in the darkness, to be a place where people of all political stripes can come together and actively love one another, where people of all races can come together and actively love one another. Think of Philippians chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy amongst you, then complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit, each of you should in humility, be more moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interest, but about the interests of others as well. An irresistibly influential church that builds the kingdom of God will love the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their minds. And they will love their neighbor as themselves. Let's be that church. This has been a production of Fathom Magazine. To find out more and read articles, go to fathommag.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bows Podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.